Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Megatalks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer Spencer. Say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. And in fact, I believe we have an entertaining topic to discuss today. We are. We are on episode three of Queen's Gambit. We are. This is the third episode out of seven. We are starting to get in the meat and potatoes of this series, my friend. It is starting to get really good. Um, I think the last episode you told me you really liked the chess matches, and I just kind of went, oh, just wait, my friend, uh, because this episode is probably, what, 30% chess matches? Yeah, and it, I was impressed, how, again, how much I enjoyed the chess matches, chess matches, but this was also probably the first episode where I started really getting invested in the character relationships, of where we get to see a bit of plot outside the chess message that I started to care about. And Are you, are you referencing Beth and Alma, or Beth and... Jojin! Options, sir. Options. We've got two good... We've, between between the two of them and between uh, Beth's relationship with Towns, which I already liked, we've got, a, we've got a collection of characters here that I'm starting to get rather invested in. Towns. Very, very 60s, Mr. Towns. Mr. Towns went to Woodstock, I'm going to guess. M- Mr. That's Towns... That's what I'm guessing. Mr. Towns was ahead of his time in a lot of ways, apparently. Woo! <laughs> absolutely utility batter right there towns uh all right let's get into the episode what we do is we do a recap of the episode i'll leave a recap of the episode then we get in the best line of the episode i alone am emperor best line of the episode although spencer does give me some nominees then we go to best scene of the episode a little different than other time other uh, shows that we've covered here on mangum talks tv we're doing best scene of the episode and then we will cut to my favorite segment what I live to do the podcast for, Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. Spencer, do you have a good one for us this week? I got a long one. I can't necessarily guarantee it's good, as only if I've you know seen, read, or heard it yet. But I, it'll fill some minutes. Great. I've got my iced coffee. I'm ready to kick back and let you run the show here in about an hour. Once we get done with the <laughs> recap, before we get going, Spencer, I think you do a couple other pods. Do you want to do a little plug here? You know, at off random moments, we tr- we actually come together for a podcast called Mangum Reads to discuss in kind of like, you know, a book club format, whatever text of the week we've decided we're, we're interested in talking about. This time around, we're going through the cozy mysteries in terms of the Agatha Awards. We're handling five or six short stories in that regard we're through two so far and we're discovering that we neither of us have the slightest idea what the definition of a cozy mystery is but we're still having fun talking about them (laughs) otherwise we're doing pottering around a chapter by chapter recap of harry potter currently on the fourth book of the series sarah's favorite and one that i'm quite enjoying so far too uh it has been quite a bit of fun to go through that and it seems like people are enjoying it too so i'm happy to hear that as well yeah, pottering around, doing Goblet of Fire. That's a that's a strong one. Um, excited about that. I love the the pottering around. I said for a long time. I think that's the best thing we do on the Mangum Talks TV, our Mangum Talks podcast channel, other than Mangum Talks TV, of course. Um, okay, well, I think we should jump into the recap here. The episode is titled "Doubled Pawns," which I did not understand the reference until the very very end of the episode, and then it clicked for me. Um, we start with a flashback of a very young Beth looking out into the water, yelling for her mom. That's at least what I took that scene to be. It was a little bit of a kind of a mysterious scene. Spencer, did you take that as young Beth uh, looking at her mom? That was my best interpretation because it looked like the limited image, limited images we've had of her mom so far that we've not seen a Beth that young or looking that exact way. Um, but that is how I read that scene, yes. Not sure necessarily what we're supposed to get out of it, but it's another flashback scene to say that, you know, the shadow of her mom is definitely still staying with her. 
Yeah, that was going to be my question. I don't know what we're supposed to take from that. And and spoiler alert, I've watched the whole series. I still don't understand what we're supposed to take from that scene. It was a very bizarre scene to just throw in there. We haven't. Um, Maybe we'll unpack something more out of it later. Yeah, who knows? But anyway, that scene gets uh, finished with, and we have the opening credits, and we cut to Cincinnati, 1963. And it is a very big, very fancy, very 1960s hotel lobby that Alma and Beth are walking through. They check into a room. Uh, note that Beth is a little dressed down, but Alma is looking fly. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, Al- Alma is here to show off and have fun. She is making a vacation of this. Alma does turn up. There's no doubt about that. She, um, in these trips, so clearly what's going on now is the family has pivoted, right? Um, the, the husband has left. Uh, he got caught up in Arizona as they, they said in the sixties, he just got lost in Arizona somewhere. Um, but they've pivoted, right? And so now Alma is really helping to facilitate Chet's, uh, Beth going to the chess matches. And I guess that's going to be the, the revenue for the family going forward. Uh, but when they're doing these, Alma seems to really be enjoying herself and is really dressed up. Uh, and in this one, they are in a very big hotel room, suite situation. Um, and Alma checks the TV. It works. Quote, I asked for a pleasant room and I believe they gave me one. I like that line. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and this is the this is the Cincinnati chess tournament that we heard about at the very end of episode two. Remember when Alma was looking through the chess magazine and said, ooh, there's one in Cincinnati we can go to. And then she like did the math of like, okay, if you win, here's the expenses. Here's how we turn a profit. With a potential $500 cash prize. Five times what she was competing for last time, right? Yeah. Very big. A lot of money back then. Oh, yeah. um, Beth runs and jumps on one of the beds and they laugh. So they're having a grand old time. Um Beth goes downstairs to sign up. The guy at the check-in desk refers to Beth as the Kentucky State Champion. This surprised me a little bit, Spencer. I did not realize that the tournament they were in before was the actual state championship of Kentucky. And I'm, Am I an idiot and just missed that? It had been said a couple times, but it was, it was, it was mostly in the background. Yeah, because I, I, I knew she was playing the state champion. I didn't know it was the state championship. But anyway, sounds yeah. like Beth, Beth's got the title belt now. She's world. She's because she got the belt. And, and hence why, in chess circles, she is already well known. You, you can just see the difference in tone between this guy who's checking in, in checking her in, versus the twins from last time. Oh, for sure. Yeah. This guy is not only polite; he is excited to be polite to her to help her get her checked in. He is supportive. Yeah, he is encouraging. This is essentially a new celebrity that is now in front of him at this tournament. And that's a theme in this episode, right? Is that Beth is entering a new sort of phase of her um, uh, of her career where now she's a little bit of a celebrity everywhere she goes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the guy explains that there are two games a day at this, at this tournament and you get two hours and you get 40 moves. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess like what that means is, um, is that two hours stretched out across the two games, I'm, I'm guessing? Not clear to me. They didn't really, they didn't really specify. I interpreted it to mean two hours for one game, and then I guess, I guess after 40 moves, it's a draw. Um, but I wasn't quite sure. Yeah. All right. Cut to Jojen. Is that Jojen's music? Uh, he is talking to someone, and he's explaining the Karo Khan defense. He calls it, quote, a genuine bummer. All pawns, no hope. Potential line of the episode right there. I like that, episode, uh, like that line. Um, Beth interrupts and explains that she'd take the night. So Beth kind of jumping in here, you know, getting her feet wet in the conversation. She starts to talk through the play. Jojen then begins to play it out, uh, play out the Kiro Khan, explaining how you win with black. Um, anything you want to talk about uh, with that exchange, Spencer? Just so we don't lose track, the name of the character is actually Benny, right? 
Benny, but we don't know his name yet. Um, That's true. We learn later. Yeah, we learn it later. Um, but I, I mean, spoiler alert, I'm going to call him Jojen. But yeah, we later learn his name is Benny. Um, As we so often do on this podcast, he is now Jojen forever after. Just stay with us, please. Yeah, he's Jojen. Yeah. Um, but I will say this about him is that he reminds me of like Neil Patrick Harris in that, you know, when Neil Patrick Harris grew up, we could be like, oh yeah, I, I intellectually know that he's like in his thirties or forties or whatever, but he still kind of looks kiddish. Yeah. Like the actor who plays Jojen still looks like a kid to me a little bit. And I wonder, um, and you'd have to read the book to know this, but I wonder if they dressed him up in that whole like dust jacket, leather, you know, tight pants, cowboy hat look. Yeah. Trying to age him up. Like that was my thought because he does kind of look pretty young. I mean, even with, you know, the, all the leather and the almost Indiana Jones look, he's got mixed with like Indiana Jones and a biker kind of look he's going. It almost makes him look even more childish. It's like a teenager who's trying to act punk kind of thing. Oh, Um, interesting. It went the other way for you. It did. I mean, it, it, it's so weird and over the top. It looks almost just like it's a, a, the kid wearing a, a black trench coat to school kind of thing. Um, it, it, I also agree with you with respect to the actor. Both him and Anna Taylor-Joy have both the, I don't know if it's advantage or disadvantage of being, of having those kind of features that they can portray across ages how they want. With her, I think she can successfully portray older or younger better than him. Him, even with beard, even with outfit, like you said, he looks 18. Yeah, he lo- he does look young. Um, but in this explanation of the Karakhan, Hayup win with ba- Black, he says he takes Rook to King Eight, check, the Queen falls. That's the Mises Ryshevsky. Uh, someone else jumps in. Um, so he's, basically what's going on here, and I, I don't know enough about the chess moves to really explain it, but what, the, the, the dynamic of the scene is he's holding court. It's very clear that this is a charismatic guy that in the chess world, when he gets around, he just starts talking. You know, yeah. we've got friends like that, right, Spencer, where yeah. they come around and they just start going. This guy clearly is that. And so as he's talking through this Karo Khan defense, people are jumping in. Oh, it's the Mises Ryshevsky. Oh, you take the queen. Like they're they're in, engaging with him as he goes. So I think what we're meant to take from this is a little bit of a blowhard, a little bit of a blowhard, but also very charismatic. Very charismatic and, to, and skilled to the point that he's basically able to use like a Socratic method to teach other chess players of where. Oh, yeah. This is not him playing other players. This is not him competing. This is him providing expert guidance on the subject. And the thing I love about the scene is it's really the, one of the first moments we ever see Beth really kind of put off and caught off guard. Is that she, you know, just effortlessly walks in, just says what move she's going to do, almost assuming that's the end of the conversation and everyone's going to mm-hmm. you know, acknowledge her brilliance. And Jojen instead just kind of shrugs off that move and then tells her how, how it wouldn't work. And she doesn't yep. seem like she has a response to that. And then he effortlessly described these moves, and she, she's like trying to, you know, bulk herself back up again by chiming in with the information. And several of the other players are as quick as she is in terms of getting that information in. And mm-hmm. she doesn't like that. Yep. The I One of the other takeaways I had from this scene is that I felt like this was little chink in Beth armor, right? Like I felt like we she's been shown as this chess superhero. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think... We're meant to take from this scene, ooh, hold on, maybe maybe not, right? Maybe maybe she's not quite as far along as maybe we think she is. Um, or as she thinks she is, pointed way too. Right, yeah. Um, he, so she asks Jojen if he's playing Benny, if he's playing. And he says, nope, just come through to see some old friends. Plus, you play in too many opens, it can only hurt me, you know. So Spencer, this goes to the ranking system you described in the last episode, right? Where mm-hmm. he's 
clearly highly ranked. It's almost like having the having the strap, right? Having the belt. You you don't want to defend the belt all the time because you can only lose it. Yeah. Um, and so he doesn't he doesn't really uh, have uh, it doesn't look like he has a lot of motivation to participate in this tournament. Best he can get out of this is half points. Whereas anybody else who's all all of whom are going to be lower ranked than he is are just gunning for the position. If he loses mm-hmm. to any of them or even draws them, he's going to start losing points, lose position. Yeah. Uh, cuts at Beth. Uh, she goes to find her match, and that doesn't take long. Uh, we basically see her sit down, whoop, uh, and she's up, and she's dropping off her paper. One of the, one of the quickest, funniest lines of the episode of where she walks up to the guy and just extends her hand saying, Hi, I'm Beth Harmon. He just says, shit, and we cut to her winning. Yep. <laughs> Yep. So at this point, not you know, it's just, it's the '60s, right? Like that. It's not like she's got like YouTube videos out there of her of her playing, right? They they are she's become a mythical sort of um, character in the chess world, and they're hearing about her, but they're not not everybody's seen her. So she sits down on Beth Harmon. Oh shit! And boop, it doesn't take long. She uh, she beats him. She drops her card off. She sees two old friends who say they are on the university team now. Twins. She says, yeah, twins. She says, uh, sorry, we won't get a chance to play. And they said they aren't. Quote, you destroy everyone you play, Harmon. Another potential line of the episode right there. Mm-hmm. That evening in the hotel room, Alma is watching TV and Beth is over a chessboard working out strategy. Alma is drinking. That is a theme of this episode and other episodes in pretty much any scene that Alma's in. God bless her soul. She's laughing and Beth asks her to keep it down. Beth then turns down the TV herself. Alma asks Beth, what she's doing, and Beth says she's replaying her earlier games, looking for weaknesses in her play. All the greats do this, Spencer, and and this um, this is something where you know you just kind of learn and hear stories about people who are perfecting their craft. They do shit like this. Like I'll tell you a quick story. Um, there's an NBA player, Giannis Antetokounmpo, mm-hmm. uh, the Greek freak. He's the two-time reigning MVP of the NBA, and he didn't start playing basketball until very. He grew up in Greece until a very. Uh, old age considerably. I think he didn't play until he was like 14 or 15 or something like that. So he doesn't have like as many reps just playing actual games as other folks. And so one thing he does is he'll play an NBA game, right? And all the, this, is, this is a home game, right? In Milwaukee, he'll play a game. And then what he, he's asked is to have the court for two and a half hours, three hours after the game. And he comes out and he replays the game. Like he goes out with a basketball and he, everywhere he stood... He stands. Every play he did, he does. And he replays the entire game by himself on the court. Um, and so this is like, you know, this is a basketball example, but this is something that really greats do, right? They, they have a match, they have a whatever it is, and they are, they're sophisticated enough to replay it over and over again, looking for weaknesses in their play. And that's what Beth's doing here. And particularly somebody that is both as proud and obsessive and dedicated to her craft as Beth is, is going to analyze each of her games to death. And as we've seen before, she's often her own worst, as proud as she is, she's often her own worst critic when it comes to even the slightest showing of weakness. And it's this idea that there could be weaknesses in her game that plays imminent importance to events that occur later in this episode. Yep. Alma asks Beth what she sees, and Beth says she sees no weaknesses in her play. Alma, good girl. Uh, <clears throat> I disagree, Alma. I don't think that's good girl. I think that's bad. She should be seeing weaknesses in her play, and I think that in and of itself is a weakness of Beth, right? As right now, she's only seeing her strength. Um, and we get you know we get that in spades here. And we, we hear of her several times in the episode talking about how proud she is that she's reviewed the games of the great masters that have gone before her and caught their mistakes, and how proud she is that she noticed them. The mere fact that she's catching mistakes in Morphe's, Paul Morphy's plays, one of the main ones she references, should mm-hmm. tell her that, you know, if 
one of the greatest American players of all time committed mistakes over the course of his relatively short but illustrious career, maybe consider there could be a few in yours too. Right. Yep. And that's, I think that's what we're, we're meant to take away from that. Ooh, that's, that's maybe not a good thing uh, there, Beth. A little, little bit too confident. Next day, Beth is there early as folks are setting up the chessboard. It cuts to Beth winning the match and folks are all around cheering. So yeah, I mean, she's, she's the celebrity, right? They're, they've come to see her matches and she's just bullying people. Catching bodies, Spencer. Mm-hmm. Beth gets up and sees that Alma was there and she watched the whole match. Twins come up to her again after the match to gush about how well she did. Beth introduces them as Matt and Mike. <laughs> uh, yeah, very forgettable names. And introduces Alma as her mom. I think that's kind of important, right? Like, I mean, I don't... Have we heard her call Alma mom before? Uh, no, we've had her acknowledge it. I don't think we've ever heard her actually refer to her in that manner before. And specifically to introduce her to people that are, you know, quite possibly becoming part of her friend group. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of my thought, is that I think this is kind of like a... We're supposed to go, oh, okay, well, they're getting closer, I think, during this process, right, of Beth going to these chess tournaments. So she calls Alma her mom. Alma says she's famished, and they lead her to the restaurant in the hotel lobby. Uh, it's tape. Go ahead. Question, by the way. Yeah. Alma's the one who prompted Beth to say this while she's kind of staring, you know, was, oh, yeah. staring with somewhat charmed eyes at the twins. I think she even oh, yeah. says that they're walking away. I can't make up my mind which one is more handsome. Oh yeah, Alma. Alma's out for blood, boy. She look. Hey, look. Uh, she's a free you know, woman now. Husband got caught in Phoenix. I mean, it happens to the best of them. And now she's now she's back out there, Spencer. You know, getting, um, this, getting stuck in those airports is a bitch, man. You just never know how many years, days, months, however long you're going to be stuck there. She so she's a little flirty, obviously. Yeah, and I think Beth gets a kick out of it too. Oh yeah. Um, at the table, they're discussing Beth playing in the U.S. Open. Matter Mike suspects she could win it. Alma then asks, "Well." Could that lead to playing abroad? They say, well, yeah, quote, they have to know you before they invite you. Beth, would winning the Open make them know about me? Them, hell yeah. Like, kind of a dumb question. Alma, how's the prize money? They say it's pretty good. Duh. They say it's more than in the States. Uh, so she then she asks about the Soviets. And that's where Matt and Mike go, Woo, let's pull the emergency brake here in the conversation. No one can hang with the Soviets. Okay. Like, and I think that the, the tenor of that is very interesting because they're basically saying the sky's the limit for you, Beth. You can win the U.S. Open. You can go abroad. You can do whatever you want. What about the Soviets? Oh, well, you uh, can't do that. No, of, of course. I mean, come on, Icarus. Dial it down a bit right now. I mean, <laughs> they, they even refer to it as like no American could even be beaten with some measure of pride in the last 20 years. That's how dominating the Soviets have been. And when she hears that, you can, you, I love how the actress Anna Taylor Joy plays that. She does not like the implication that she can't hang with the Soviets. You can tell that gets her competitive cockles up right there. Uh, so file that away, folks. Yeah, damn straight it does. I think even by the end of this episode, she's damn well learning Russian because she has a new life goal. Yeah. There is theoretically someone out there that is better than me and thinks just institutionally they're better than me. Well, that cannot stand. Jordan had this. I bring it back to basketball. Jordan had this. Um, there was a player that played in, in Europe called Arvita Sabonis um, who was legendary, but he loved He just happened to love Europe. And he's like, I'm not, I don't want to go to the United States to play basketball. Like, novel concept, right? And he was making a lot of money. I mean, not the money you'd make in the NBA. Sure. But he's making a lot of money. This is in the, like, the early 90s. And Jordan hated it. The idea that there was this guy out there, Arvita Sabotas, who was not playing in his league that he didn't have a chance to beat, drove him crazy, right? Beth, same kind of competitor here, where she's like, I got to get at least into the game to have a chance to play these fuckers because I can't have people walking around saying, you know what? You can't hang with them. 
Do we know for certain that Jordan didn't fly over and just show up at his house one day to demand a pickup game? He might have. And, and knowing Sabonis, he probably would have played him. <laughs> but, you know, to play that out for folks who don't know the story, eventually Sabonis did come to the NBA, but by that point he had multiple injuries and he gained a lot of weight due to those injuries. Shell of a player he used to be, although still very, very good. Check out the Arvita Sabonis YouTube clips, my friend. You'll have a good afternoon. Hmm. Uh, cut back to Beth playing in the championship against a guy named Rudolph. I like here's something I like about how this has been how this is staged this episode is in this scene, right? Beth is moving with intense certainty, right? Every move is hard. She bangs the piece down. She two two hands claps her face and she looks right at the person as she's playing. She's a very aggressive player. I mean, so you Yeah, go ahead. I'm not even sure if it's fully intentional or it's just the sheer level of confidence of her, but a key part of her style seems to be just sheer intimidation of her opponent. Yeah. She, she literally what I'm saying cuz she's catching bodies, it's that kind of thing like oh, she's yeah. bullying them and staring at them, but I like that they do it because now we know how Beth looks when she's comfortable. So we're going to know how she looks she's not. when she's not comfortable, right? And so that's I think that's what they're setting up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she does stare that motherfucker in the face as she plays. We see Matt and Mike doing the commentary. And very quickly, Beth has him in. Boop, that's check. And boop, that's mate. And bang, game over. And uh, see you, Rudolph. And two notable things about this game in particular. One, there's no longer denying that she is just a, a phenomenon in the chess world. Everyone is here now to see her play. And there's no level of judgment. There's no level of sexism. Her ability has apparently overcome all of those hurdles. Yep. Second big issue here, this, I believe, is the first game we've ever seen her mom watch her play. Because her mom is there with the twins, happily relying on their commentary as to what the hell is happening. Uh, happy to be near the twins. Yeah, but she does, and she watches the whole thing. And I think even Beth gets up and says, did you watch the whole thing? Like, it was, you know, it's kind of news to Beth that, that Alma would do that. To which she says, somewhat similar to us, yes, it was much more exciting than I thought it would be. Yeah, and probably quicker than she thought, too, because it looks like she just demolishes Rudolph there. Who takes it um, in stride. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's another thing. I like how the chess world is depicted, because there is great sportsmanship. I mean, I don't I don't think we see anybody, spoiler alert, in the series who who is very rude to her if she beats him. Like, I mean, she's they, they all shake her hand, and, they, you know, it's, it's almost like golf that way. Like, you never... You can see a lot of competitors in golf, but you I don't think you'll ever see a guy who's like openly rude to somebody who just beat him, except for maybe Tiger Woods. Everybody else, he can get away with that. But pretty much everyone else does the handshake, hey, good game, you know, it was your day today, I'll get you next time type deal. Closest we have, maybe that falls into a somewhat more rude category, is actually Beth herself. But Beth even herself. then, mm-hmm. even yep. then, she still goes through the formality of it, even if she exits stage left right away afterwards. Yeah, I was going to say that Beth Beth actually breaks that that rule later on. Um, but yeah, but pretty much everybody else just handshake, good job, you know, and, and does the pleasantries. And, and you know, that's it's nice to see. You like to see. Yes, you like to see is. that sportsmanship. Cut to Alma and Beth walking in the hotel, and Alma is counting up their expenses, and Beth is one step ahead of her the entire way in the calculation. I like that little detail in this scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we learned back in the orphanage rings true, right? Beth has a mind for math. It helps, obviously helps her in playing chess. And as Alma's doing these expenses, Beth is kind of like, it's almost like, you know, you're doing two plus two and four. And then like she said four and then Beth's like, yeah, four. Like, you know, right. Yep. Yep. I got you. Hurry up. Hurry up. What are you getting to? Well, what she's getting to is this quote from Alma. I was thinking perhaps you can give me 10% as an agent's commission. Whoop. Stop Spencer. Question for you. Mm. What do you think of this deal? What do you think? of Alma asking for an agent's commission, do you think it's fair? Do you think Beth should give it to her? 
Well, we've seen the signs so far that Alma is adopting the role of helping coordinate and plan out travel tournaments, hotels, everything along those lines. She is doing a job. It also is, you know, Beth is below the age of majority in any way. And so the fact that Alma is already just straight up saying that, no, all of this money is yours. It goes in your account. You can do with it as you want. And I'll take a commission off the side. If that's what she's doing, works out fine. Now, if that's not what she's doing, if it's becoming group money and she's just taking 15% off the top for herself, and we don't see more going forward about her actually continuing this role of actually steaming to actually plan out their travel, pick what tournaments they go to, or help coordinate and plan out tournaments, then that's getting a little bit worrisome. So my th- I, so I like yeah, I like your points there. My thought on this is this. I think that f- from what we see of what Alma is doing, 10%, Beth ups it to 15%, we'll get there in a second, is eminently reasonable for what she's doing. Sure. Um, I think that's fine. My issues are, I have two issues with it. One is I suspect that that money that's going to Beth is also going to pay the rent. Right. So like some of the, yeah, some of the basic bills that the two of them have together, Beth's going to either pay in whole or in part. So I think you got to factor that in when you start talking about giving almost some walking around money. Also, I just suspect that this is for drinking. Like I just suspect that this is just on these. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Almost looking for some money in her pocket to order these martinis that we see that she's getting all the time. And so, you know, I, 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 I don't think at this point Beth has a problem with it, but I I think that like if I was Beth, I would be slightly concerned about giving this person just a bunch of money to just have walking around, right? Because um, it could be, it could spell disaster for her later on. Yeah, two things there. One, I'm actually assuming fifteen percent is in addition to her regular drinking money because I kind of assumed that she factored the drinking money into their expenses for this trip. Oh well, if that's the case, then I'm. I'm out on the 15% because I think yeah. that she's running up big bar bills. Like uh, I think that <laughs> point number two, this seems to factor into something of what we've seen of Beth before that she doesn't assign much value. It seems to money and is just kind of flippant no. with it. Yep. Yeah. Completely agree. But anyway, Beth says, you know what, let's make it 15. So saying, yeah, that, so Beth, whatever we think, Beth agrees with this. She thinks it's fine. And she's already boop calculated it. That'll be $49 and 54 cents. Um, Alma says, Mathieu, I guess, is the orphanage that uh, Beth went to. Told her she was marvelous at math, and I guess that's Methuen. There you go. Um, can't read my own notes. And told her that she was marvelous at math, and it looks like she is. So that's the deal now. Um, whatever we think of it, that is the deal. Uh, Alma is going to seek out these tournaments, do the logistics, get Beth to point A to point B, wherever she needs to be. She's going to take 15% off the top. Cut to Alma and Beth in an airplane, and Alma is reading a newspaper article about Beth, and it's glowing. Um, Indeed. Yeah, then we get a montage of Alma calling Beth out of school (laughs) as they get ready to go to these tournaments. So there's a little detail that maybe we didn't get right at the beginning of the episode, which is when Beth is going to these things, she's supposed to be in school, and Alma is just lying lying her face off about Beth. Like, oh my God, never seen a child with such a fever. Oh my gosh, the coffin, it just doesn't stop. Can you believe it? Spencer, how do you feel about Beth not going to school to go to these chess tournaments? I mean, for any other kid, I might say it's a problem from both a social and intellectual standpoint, the importance of a degree, but I have no doubts at all that Beth, genius that she is, can effortlessly do school from afar without a problem. And in terms of the social aspect of things, I don't think 
not any amount of high school what's actually going to change or broaden Beth's demeanor when it comes to those things. No, Beth just needs to get old. Because her personality will be just fine mixing with adults. Yes. But she's not going to do well with teenagers. Yeah. Um, as we see. As we get as to see. We see. <laughs> as yeah. we get to spend a little bit of time of her both traveling around and spending about every third day in high school. Yep. Uh, cut back to an airplane and Alma is getting a martini. And at least it looks like a martini. She's telling Beth about another tournament. Apparently this one is over Christmas. Which, you know, Beth kind of you know it strikes her a little weird Alma pitches it as a time for them to do girly things they could go to the spa Beth yes mother and then Loma Alma and Beth hold hands um so it looks like she's going to go to another tournament over the Christmas holiday in uh, Houston wasn't it yeah in Houston cut to Alma lying about Beth being sick again as Beth picks out an outfit uh cut to them on a plane again and they are eating good looking meal there Spencer you don't get that kind of meal in a plane anymore. Wow, man. Big hunk of meat, bread, salad, veggies. Man, that looked good. And Alma's drinking a, what we think is a martini. Alma then hands the drink over to Beth. Beth takes a drink after doing a little... <laughs> one of those steals. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. very good. Oh, very good. Yeah, thank you. I can handle this just fine. Uh, Alma explains that this is a Gibson, not a martini, um, because I guess she, she thinks she likes the onion instead of the, the olive and the martini. And at the end of the scene, we see a picture of a newspaper article on, did you catch the name of the fella the newspaper article was on? Uh, I'm blanking on the name right now, but this is the lead Russian player that we've heard referred to of before. Vasily Borgov. Borgov, that's right. Yeah, we are setting up for a chess version of Rocky Four, my friend. That, that man has a stare and some eyebrows to accompany it. That is an intimidating look on that guy's face as he's staring down that newspaper photographer, apparently. Shit, yeah. Vasily Borgov cut to the spa. Beth, I should probably learn how to speak Russian. Beth explains that she'd have to take a night class at the junior college to do it. Alma says all the boys would be older than her, uh, but I don't uh, take that as a negative, maybe, <laughs> between the two of them. I think they were kind of like joking about how that would be okay. Uh, qu- question, by the way, from the airplane scene. Um, yeah. During that scene, you know, her mom asks how she's doing with her meal, and Beth responds, I think this is the best Christmas I've ever had. And her mom oh, yeah. laughs mm-hmm. as if she's interpreting it as a joke. Do you think Beth was joking? Hell no. I know. She's she's like actually having some like bonding time. I mean, look, Alma, flawed. Very flawed. I think her flaws are on display. But no, they're not hiding them. But... She does seem to really have an affection for Beth, and Beth is bonding with her, and Beth is on a fucking airplane eating a great meal, like about to go kick some ass in chess. Like, it, it's a pretty cool life. Like, it's not bad. I agree. Uh, I think Beth was being fully sincere when she said that, both that, you know, practically it's a great meal, practically you've got a parental figure that actually cares about you, and is supporting your interests, and in, not, not just supporting them, but directly taking her own time to encourage them and nourish them. And you are doing what you love on a day-to-day basis. Life is good. Shit, yeah. Spencer, quick aside. What's the best meal you ever had on an airplane? Not that thing. I mean, wow. It's been a long time. Even in in my lifetime, I've seen the degradation in those meals. Yeah, for sure. An early trip I took to... uh, early trip I took to Scotland when I was a kid. We flew on British Air. And that was during a period when British Air was a much... It's still a good. It's still a good airline, but it had a much more additional nice features associated with it. And I'd only ever flown on American Airlines before, so taking British Air across the Atlantic, I just remember how much food they gave us. Where I had like four meals on that flight, and like two of them were actually decent meals. Right. But that's been twenty-five years. 
And since yeah. then, you know, the pre- I like the cookies when they give when they give like you know, the the little like sugar biscotti cookies. Those are nice. Yeah, the, the, the airplane meals have gotten shitty. My my best one was probably on like Air France. Oh, sure. Um, and it was like a but like what I liked about it, it was like kind of like what you're talking about. It was a lot, a lot of little picking things. It was like bread, uh-huh. like cheese, like some prosciutto, you know, little little uh, um, like omelet type thing, some eggs. Yeah, that that's the best I ever had. Air France probably. The, the, uh, the, but yeah, it's nothing like what we're seeing here. The justification I've heard before is that ticket prices basically haven't increased in like 30 years, which is kind of true. And so they've had to cut everything else. And so meals have sadly been one of those things on the chopping block. Yeah, but I wish I could pay just a little more for a better meal as opposed to having to like pay a lot more for business class. Yeah, can, can, can we like, you know, switch that up of where I in, I'm in coach, but I pay for a better meal associated with that? Is that not Yeah, I totally would do that. Uh, but anyway, that's a, that's an aside. <laughs> Neither here nor there, Spencer. Uh, right, but it this. certainly is not a big hunk of meat like uh, like Beth has got there. Cut to folks from Life Magazine. Woo! Life Magazine was big was big in the 60s, man. That's a that's a big get. Uh, in a photo shoot with Beth, Beth is explaining to the lady that yes, you play chess to win, but Chess can also be beautiful. Beth is trying to open up here, I think. Um, It's really interesting to the degree that which she does and the degree to which the woman is just not responsive to it. Yeah, I know. And like, we know that Beth does not do this very often. And so like, I'm getting frustrated with the lady as Beth is talking. I'm like, damn, listen to her. She doesn't do this very much. Um, Instead, the lady just keeps trying to put Beth in an established narrative box. It's like she's got a few set stories that she can assign Beth to. She's not taking any notes, and that's already a piss-off right there. She's not. She's paying more attention to her cigarette than she is to Beth right now. Ridiculous. And then when Beth really honestly starts barring her soul about why chess is so appealing to her, the lady immediately then just tries to assign it to a new narrative about that she's actually crazy, and this is just a representation of it. Unbelievable. Beth is asked, being an orphan, how did she learn to play chess? And Beth, to her credit, brings up Mr. Scheibel, the janitor at the orphanage that we saw in episode one. And for a little bit in episode two. The lady tries to make a metaphor out of the chess pieces, and Beth has none of it. She just calls them pieces, but explains, because she was like, is it, you know, because the lady's doing the thing of like, oh, isn't it like, you know, the woman, the man does this and the woman does this? Beth, uh-uh, no, they're just pieces. But it's the but board that matters. It, Exactly. Beth goes on to drop this line, which I nominate for potential line of the episode. It's an entire world of just 64 squares. I feel safe in it. I can control it. I can dominate it. And it's predictable. So if I get hurt, I only have myself to blame. Telling telling line. That is Beth at her most vulnerable we've ever seen her in this entire series. That is a surprising moment of honesty and vulnerability coming out of this character. And any other journalist that was paying attention would have made note of that and run with it. Because... That's the moment of when you've got the person vulnerable, you show a bit of sympathy, you show a bit of interest, and you get that to open up. You don't immediately take that vulnerability and try to hammer it into another box. No, not at all. Um, and uh, But uh, Beth then, uh, she then, she, so instead of taking that, right, mm-hmm. and, and listening to Beth and, and asking her questions, instead she goes to this line of logic that I guess she's already like predetermined she's going to ask about. She goes, have you heard of apophenia? which is apparently some sort of like a condition where you find pattern or meaning where other people don't. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people with this find patterns or meanings where there aren't any. This lady is clearly suggesting that Beth has this condition with Beth picks up on says, you think I'm crazy on the cut it off. That's it. 
uh, it's over. Beth has to get to work. You know, she's a normal little girl. You know, she's got schoolwork just like everybody else, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, not really. No, uh, the lady it, tells it's a better narrative. Good. The lady tells Beth uh, that um, she might like bridge. Apparently a lot of chess players enjoy it. Spencer, what do you think the lady's getting at with the bridge comment? Bridge is often associated with gambling in some ways, so maybe I, I thought maybe it might have something to do with that. But I, I really wasn't sure. It just felt like just kind of odd, really tone deaf kind of line. I thought she was driving at like an assumption that Beth really isn't happy, um, and that this was like kind of like um, you know, hey, look, you know, try this. That might give you some peace. Like a hobby. Although Beth had never really insinuated to her that she doesn't have peace, right? I think she was just trying to read into to something there um, from Beth. But anyway, I don't, I don't like that lady. I thought she was sort of a jerk. Cut to Alma reading the article there at dinner, and Beth is noticing that people are looking at her and talking about her. Interspersed in this scene is Beth signing autographs. So clearly, this is a montage to show that Beth's life is changing, right? She's in Life magazine. She can't go to dinner without people looking at her when she's at. Um, when she's at school, people are asking for autographs, things like that. Um, quote from the um, from the article: She is quiet, mild mannered, and out for blood. Ooh, accurate summary. <clears throat> Alma coughs in this scene uh, when she can't quite make. And then after she coughs, uh, it looks like she gets like kind of like dizzy or rattled, and then she can't quite make out the words in the magazine. Um, bad sign. Bad sign, Mister Pants guy. Um, bad, bad sign. Bad sign. Beth just tries to play it off because she's tired of the article anyway, but it should be a pretty serious warning sign that there's something you want to have checked out. Beth doesn't really play it off, though, because um, she... She plays it off for a second. For a second, yeah, exactly. For a second, she says, well, uh, she was upset that they didn't write about some of the stuff she says, right? Didn't mention Mr. Scheibel or how she plays the Sicilian. You know, this is going to what we were talking about. Beth opened up in this, or at least she thought she did, opened up in this interview. And the lady just really did not take the bait at all. And it's a lot of uh, missed opportunity, right, on the table. And Beth is picking up on that. Finally, Beth stops, calls it out like she sees it. Quote, do you ever think maybe it's the drinking that makes you sick? Uh, Alma, in a very dismissive way, says, Oh, please, I flirted with alcohol most of my life. If anything, I think it's high time I consummated the relationship as she takes another drink. Um, yeah, so I think what she means here, right, is that she there was somebody holding her back before. I think the, the husband held her back in some of her drinking. I think now she's saying, look, I'm just going to go ham. Um, she does not dispute the claim that the drinking is making her sick, uh, but she certainly does not say that she's going to do anything about it. This is like this is like the line I'm reference to one of your other favorite shows, Deadwood. This is like the line between Wild Bill Hickok, Wild Bill Hickok, and Charlie Utter about Charlie. Can you let me go to hell the way I want to? Mm-hmm. She's essentially decided she's going to enjoy her life now without restrictions, without limitations, without any level of unhappiness, and is not in the mood to hear any criticism or commentary on that. Yeah, and I didn't really take it as Beth being critical. I think Beth was like. Really, like, yeah, it was like a real honest question. Like, hey, you know what? I think it's the drinking that is doing this. Beth was being concerned. Alma is going to sign is going to assign anything in those categories to being critical. Fair, fair. Uh, I certainly don't think that that Alma was receptive of any any sort of change there. Cut to Beth at a locker, and she's being invited to a party. This is the scene. That we talked about earlier, Spencer, we referenced that, you know, we get a little bit of uh, Beth and her social life among peers. Um, and cut to, to note, go ahead. Beth, Beth is dressing noticeably better. That she has higher quality clothes, a yes. better haircut. She is starting to, you know, 
physically represent the necessary traits to be an in-circle in the, in the high school world, on top of being a just international celebrity, or at least national celebrity. Yeah, for sure. And um, these are very 60s clothes. I think that the you know, one of the real strengths here of the show is that the costumes are just on point. I mean, you're, you're right, Spencer. There is a noticeable uptick in the quality of her clothing, but it still is within the guardrails of what, was, what you would see in the 1960s. It's, I think it's very well done. We've made some fun of the show for you know, not trying to do accents correctly, for being a little bit flexible about what women's rights were during the period, but the costuming, the set design, on point. So my wife was watching this with me as I'm doing the, the notes, and she made the point. I just want to make, make sure everyone understands, everybody out there, everybody listening, my wife made this point, not me, that they're all very 60s bras, too. <laughs> if you notice like how how like the how how people look wearing these 60 bras it's a it's a different sort of look uh i'll just leave it at that it's a different presentation as it were yeah there you go that's a way to put it uh but yeah so they i mean you know they're they're very uh attention to detail here from the the costuming folks uh spot on 10 out of 10 uh at the party they're asking her about her travels and she says it's in and they say it's impressive to see her in the papers. Beth explains how her rating is at 1,800. Spencer, is this good? This is quite good. This is starting to verge on the level of expert in the U.S. Chess Federation's mind um, or even candidate master in the International Chess Federation's mind. She's getting to a point of when people are really paying attention. But that 1,800 rating completely lost on this audience. Uh, she says she's going to go to Vegas. One of the girls asks her if she has a boy, but clearly no. Uh, and they kind of start to make fun of her a little bit for the fact that she doesn't have like a boy that she's like doting on or something. Um, notice that the party is being catered by an African-American servant here um, who comes in and delivers them cupcakes. The girls turn on the TV and it's You're the One by the Vogue. You're the one that I long to kiss, baby. You're the one that I re You know that song. I actually and like this song quite a bit, yes. I do too. It's very catchy. So that song comes on and the girls all start singing it to each other and like just having a grand old time. And Beth is not feeling this shit at all. This is yeah. not her scene. She actually looks around and I think she thinks the girls are a little pathetic. At least that's what I I took it, from the look. It was like kind of like a, yeah, really? This is what you guys do for fun? This is what you do for fun? For really? It's definitely an element of that. And part of the initial problem is that because she has so little exposure dealing with people her own age and, you know, girls in just this kind of yep. just social setting, they give her a lot of opportunities to start a conversation, to, you yep. know, discuss something fun. Like, oh, you travel a lot. Where's the best place you've been yet? expecting mm -hmm. someplace sunny or fun or a nice vacation. And she says Houston. And I'm glad to know that apparently Houston in popular consciousness has not changed in the last 50 years as a tourist destination. H-Town. Yeah, a lot to see there. Big bar scene. Big bar scene. I'm sure Alma was having fun there in H-Town. Um, Beth, not feeling this shit, says she's going to go to the bathroom. She gets up and whoop! What does she see, Spencer? She sees the bar. Uh, we get a great scene. Really great shot scene of the from the outside of the house and you can see in the window different parts of the house you see the girls and they're dancing and you see beth kind of doing a tango of her own with the bar um and finally she just books it out of there uh, she goes home 
uh, holding holding the straps of her coat very very tightly. Oh yeah, you might it's notice. Cold out. Very cold. cold. Out. Yeah, very cold. She just has to make sure she's completely uh, bundled up. I took it to mean she ghosted these girls. That she just completely pieced out without saying anything to them. She did do that, and. Uh, and she gets home, she takes some pills, and whoop, she has got a bottle of liquor that she stole from that. I, I, um, I love that she's not changed since she was nine when it comes to pilfering these things. She didn't, like, you know, take a swig and walk out. She took the entire, the entire bottle. bottle. Yeah, you know, Beth is a, Beth is clearly like an addict at heart, right? Because, like, she doesn't, when she doesn't know when she's going to get more, she takes a lot. And she took this entire bottle, it looks like a full bottle, and she chugga lugs it. I mean, she, she takes it right down. It. Yeah. Yeah, and none of the, none of the sort of, <clears throat> yeah, it's really good that she was doing on the airplane with that, uh, with that martini. Instead, this is a, boy, man, she has taken cowboy drinks of of this bottle here uh and then boop she lays down in bed and we see the shot great great cinematography here we see the shadows of the chest pieces start to move across her body we don't see the chest pieces themselves we see the kind of the shadows moving on her body and so it's clear that you know she came home to get fucked up and look at the ceiling and think about chess um i'm just gonna say uh trouble oh yeah but trouble from a cinematography design standpoint, love that scene. Love that scene from the moment the folks start playing through the moment that she's laying in bed and we're just seeing the shadows moving. Great scene of television. But <laughs> if you are a Beth fan, trouble. Not a great scene for her. No. And I am a Beth fan. Let, let me just let me just mark my put my stake down on the ground right now. I am Team Beth, and I don't like what that what that spells yeah. for her. Yeah. Um, Cut to 1966, three whole years later, and Beth is in Las Vegas. She's walking into the hotel room, up some stairs. She gets to a room with chessboards set up. Towns meets her there. My stars, you look wow. Towns likes what he sees. And Beth is all of what, 18, 19 now? She's grown up in the world. She She is of age, my friend. Uh, Beth says thanks. Uh, Beth does look good here. I'm just gonna say yeah. like they've they've dressed her up. She looks very good. Towns is noticing it, and he says uh, he's not playing. Uh, he is writing for the Chess Review. They sent him to write about. I guess this is the Open, right? This is the Vegas Open. This is the U.S. Uh, Open. They would say this is either this is not the U.S. Championship. So yeah, I think you're right. I think it's the U.S. Open by comparison. Yeah, um, Towns. Um, uh, Beth explains that um, she did not come the year before. That would be 1965. Although, she paid her entry fee, but she just didn't show up because she says her mother got sick. Another bad sign. Another bad sign. Another bad sign. Town makes a reference that she's um, making a lot of money, and Beth doesn't hide it. She yeah. basically says, yeah, yeah, I'm fucking loaded, dude. It's great. Yeah, um, yeah. Want some? <laughs> it's, so, it's so just power trip flipping. She's... Throughout this entire conversation, she clearly is happy to see him, but she's clearly still walking away from him and making him follow her as they go. Oh, little cat and mouse, of course. Towns of course. says she could become a world-class chess player. She's not already, I would say. Um, and Beth explains that she is, in fact, learning Russian. So she she went through with that plan. Towns says he could write about her, but Beth, the ultimate boss move, says, I was on the cover of that magazine last month. <laughs> to which he... You can almost just see him visibly just swallowing his pride for a second. He said, oh, yeah, and um, read your spread in life, too. But he thinks of a clever way to actually get back to her right now. Yeah, he does. He says he also works for the Herald Leader, and he could do a piece on her for that. And Beth Lexington. Agrees. Yeah, Beth agrees. And he says he has a camera. Where, Spencer? Where's the camera? 
Ah, uh, you know, it's in my room. Woo! You know, I, I, got a, I got a chess board up there. We could play some chess. Maybe we'll go up to the room, Beth. No I, problem there. Just a couple I of adults. I adore Anna Taylor, Taylor Joy's expressions throughout this yeah. scene. If you mm-hmm. could just watch the thought processes and the wheels turning as, as she's going through this, Beth. Yep. What does this mean? What is he suggesting? Am I okay with this? I think I'm okay with this. Should I be okay with this? I'm okay with this. Let's go. Perfect monologue for what we were seeing there from Beth. Because she, when he says my room, she takes note. But she goes up there and she seems down during this scene. Um, We cut to uh, to Beth walking into the hotel room. There is a chessboard set up and he tells her to sit over by the window. He takes like a top off, maybe like like a coat type thing. Um, gets his camera out. One of those old school 60s cameras that you had to wind up. Um, which, which, nice prop which, there. Which incidentally, because you have to wind him up, because it's not on his chest so he can still look her in the eyes without it blocking his vision of her, that camera is remarkably more intimate in a way I did not realize. It is, yeah. And uh, and he gets, he gets pretty close to her. Um, takes a picture. Um, and she says she wasn't ready. Uh, well, Beth, look, let me explain. Look, look as an amateur photographer myself, um, kids uh uncle lee's gonna gonna tell you something oh please yeah the the best pictures are when you're not looking and you're not paying attention so if you're ever in a photo shoot don't start yelling at the photographer that you weren't ready that's the whole point his Mm -hmm. whole point he or she's whole point is to take pictures of you uh to try to get the real you so uh you know this whole thing of i wasn't ready beth come on You, you should know better than that by now you're on the cover of magazines um yeah and that's 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 uh that's your lesson from uncle lee Mm-hmm. Uh, he keeps taking her picture and she starts to giggle. He tells her to go by the board, which uh, is near the bed. And so it, it, she gets down on her knees near the board and begins to play. She mentions she doesn't know his first name. Apparently his last name's is Towns. I didn't realize that <laughs> until this scene. Um, he says that's why he calls her Harmon instead of Beth. He doesn't, I guess he likes to go by last names. He's like, like very like, like varsity, like gym class type guy. You know, you know, those guys always tell the, call the girls oh, okay. by their last name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like it here too is that she's trying to like extend this kind of you know personal moment between the two of where he says no I was probably why I always call you by your last name she says well my name is Beth and his only response is I prefer Harmon and never tells her yeah so this is just idle chatter at this point um, yes. but he does get down on the floor next to her and he starts to take her picture and woo, starts stroking her hair um, yeah. she and looks at him I think it's about to be on Spencer but the door opens and fucking Roger Roger Fucking Roger. Roger. Roger's the worst, Spencer. Roger walks in. Town introduces her, and Roger says, oh, the chess prodigy. So yet again, you know, her her reputation preceding her. And Roger changes his clothes, getting ready for the pool, kind of walks out in like some like gym trunks, uh, swim trunks. And uh, and he says, um, he reminds Towns that dinner is what, at six, something like that. Yeah. And um, practically winks and walks out the door. So... The implication here. Yeah, let's talk about the implication, Spencer. All right, let's. We were dancing around it in the intro. Um, what do we think of Towns here? I think I think Towns is a little free love, is what I'm getting at. I think Towns is a little free love. I think he's a he switch it. And... I think Towns is probably a four or five on the Kinsey scale, as it were. I think this was his gay lover that we just met, who is wearing a shirt. He's wearing like a sweater vest that is so tight it's almost a muscle shirt by comparison when he walks in. But I don't and, think that would stop Towns from making a run at Beth. No, this is what I mean. Towns is probably a little bi, but more than anything else, he is just enraptured to a certain degree with Beth. Yeah, sure. And or Harmon, Harmon. If yeah, sorry, Harmon. <laughs> if if Roger had not walked in there, if Roger had just enjoyed lounging by the pool instead, 
the two of them would have had a moment, I think. Oh, for sure. It was going down, Spencer. The drums were already playing. Um, and, we were we were ready to go. And um, Harmon, Harmon holds a visible grudge that it didn't over the course of the rest of this episode, it seems. No, she didn't like that. And I think that she... I'm going to speak for Beth here. I think Beth feels like she said yes, and he kind of revoked the offer. And that, that I think, might have offended her a little bit. Fucking Roger. He's the worst. Can we all agree Roger's the worst? Absolute worst. I mean, just... Towns, you can do better. We've seen Roger. We've seen him now. Please. Ditch, Ro- ditch Roger. Get with Harmon. Cut Beth back uh, to ba- uh, Beth back at her hotel, and Alma asks for a beer. Um, so Alma, drinking more. Um, Alma... Uh, Gives Beth the beer to try, and Beth knocks it down. <laughs> Just, as you said, big cowboy gulps are happening right now. I did this as a kid. Uh, my dad brought me in. Uh, he was having a dinner party or something. Not dinner party. That sounds way more fancy than what my fucking parents did. People were over, and they were cooking steaks. That's what it was. And nice. um, they were drinking, and my dad, I can't remember what age it was. probably like six or something. And my dad was like, hey, son, um, try this. And they were all like giggling. I think they were waiting for that moment of like the, you know, the spit take. Oh, God, Dad, this is terrible. How can you drink this? Which is so traditional just because of how our taste buds work at different ages. Yeah, of course, right? Almost every kid is overly sensitive to bitter or sour tastes that you're going to get from particularly beer. And so it is only natural to everybody, a recurring joke among adults everywhere, that the kid's going to hate the beer. Yeah, but I knocked it. I'll tell you this. I knocked it down. <clears throat> Just drank it all the way down and said, yeah, it was pretty good. And it mortified my father, uh, as it should. Um, it wasn't the joke he was playing. He was expecting here. <laughs> and this is exactly what Beth does to Alma, right? She just knocks this pat blue ribbon down. And, and then... Ask for another. I want one more. And, and Alma says you really shouldn't. And those defenses stay up for uh, two beats, Maybe. Completely crumbles, says, all right, well, if you're going to have one, get me one, too. So now we have entered, I think, a new phase of the relationship with Alma and Beth. I think now they're also drinking buddies. Yeah, this this is no longer just simply turning a blind eye and not being necessarily a responsible enough parent. Now you're directly enabling. For sure. But, you know, put yourself in Alma's position, right? What is she going to do? Like, say no? I mean, she can't. She has no moral high ground on this issue. She has no more high ground, but she does have practical, legal, and financial high ground that she could wield here. It would be a lot better if she'd started wielding it a couple years in the past. Makes it a little bit hard now to do a bit of a change-up. I but, think Alma also wants a drinking buddy out of Beth. I think she I, likes the idea. I think Alma is a very lonely person in a lot of ways. Yeah, so they start drinking Paps Blue Ribbon, Spencer's favorite. Um, Man alive, you finished that sentence with a straight face. My compliments. <laughs> Question for you, though, Spencer. Was every fucking Vegas hotel room in the 60s just stocked with alcohol? I mean, Beth and Alma have this big tub of uh, Paps Blue Ribbon just sitting on their counter. And if you notice in the scene with Towns, he had a mini bar uh, with bottles of liquor that didn't look it didn't look like he it looked like it was part of the room, the assembly of the room. So I'm just wondering if like every fucking hotel room in the 60s in Vegas just was stocked with liquor. This is Vegas 66. This is Mob Run Vegas. They know their clientele. They know what people are here for. This is not family fun and friendly Vegas that it is corporate controlled today. Of course that is going to be a well-stocked minibar. Man, for sure. Cut to Beth playing in the tournament. Quote, my first match was this guy from Oklahoma. It was all over in two dozen moves. That's actually pretty fast. Then this guy from San Francisco. I played the marshal. Hmm. Sacrificed my queen. 
the way the Paul Morphy did one time. This is this is Beth talking to Alma. Alma asked about Benny. Uh, Beth says he has no losses but one draw. Beth says he always has a crowd around him. So this is what I was talking about before, right? He is a charismatic felt. Always got a crowd around him. Uh, he's apparently the U.S. champion. She explains that he is a prodigy, too. At eight, he was kicking people's asses. I just did a little bit of... Um, I just shortened that story there. But uh, he, he was kicking people's asses when he was very young. Uh-huh. Beth says she is not afraid of him. Might be, an, might be a mistake there. She explains there's only one person who scares her. The Russian Borgolf. That just so reflects the ego that Beth is wielding right now. Unbelievable. She should be a little scared of Benny. A little bit scared. It's like Borgoff doesn't even know you exist. You do not even operate in the same circles that he does. Not even the same plane the circles would be in kind of thing. Focus yourself. This is your opponent. This This is the U.S. champion right now. And you're just flippantly disregarding him and moving on to bigger fish? You haven't even caught a fish yet. Yeah, completely agree. Cut to Benny. Uh, he's just talking shit. Um, he sees Beth. You're Beth Harmon. I saw the piece in life. Game they printed. That was a pretty one. The one you did with Beltic. I'm Benny Watts. Beth, I know. <laughs> uh, Beth says they met in Cincinnati, but Benny did not play that year. Uh, Benny says, well, I have to take your word for it. I guess he didn't remember that exchange. Is ben- question throughout this entire scene. Is Benny- How much is Benny playing her right now? How much is he playing her off the table? He 100% remembers her in Cincinnati. Just making 100%. Sure. Absolutely. He is just messing with her head like an Negging. Equal... Yes, it is negging to a very targeted way. Yeah, I mean, this is the type of thing, Spencer, you you're, you know this very well as a pickup artist. What you do is you you take a pretty girl and you just kind of like make, like you just neg her. You just little teeny bit negative things, or at least I hear that's what you do. Um, I know that you, you have a lot of practice in this in this area. And I think that's what Benny is doing right now. He's pulling a Spencer, we could say. Um, really, really that, nagging her. You ever have that moment when you realize you've been doing something wrong for the entirety of your life? I think I just kind of had that moment with you. Beth <laughs> uh, says they met. Uh, no, no, no. That, uh, uh, as she walks away, um, he says um, she shouldn't have castled in her match against Belton. Oh, She's not like this at all. He starts to explain, but she says she has to go. Uh, and then they have this exchange where she's like trying to walk away, but they're like, they're continuing to talk about it. Um, finally he says, set it up and think about it. She says she doesn't want she to. She does not like that. That one hurts her. Uh, Spencer question for you here. Do you think Benny is sincerely trying to help her sincerely explaining, Hey, you, there was something you didn't see there. You might want to look at it. Or do you think this is all Spencer-esque move negging? I think it is a mix of the two. I think it is being helpful in a way that directly serves his interests, so should be qualified as nagging, I think. Of where he is fitting into the exact same mold he was doing before. There's no, there's absolute plausible deniability about what his intent is here. But it is, seems particularly targeted at rattling her confidence at a key moment. Yeah, I honestly think he's doing both. Because Benny does strike me as a guy who is like a natural teacher. Because and, every like in every scene we we have with him, he's teaching chess to people. I think he does want to. I think there's a part of him that does just legitimately want to tell her, "Hey, you know, you might want to take a look at this." But I also think he knows he's got to beat her in this tournament, and this is a way to fuck with her. And it does. He succeeds 100 percent because later that night, she's in the hotel room and she tells Alma that she could have lost the match to Beltic. She's finally worked it out. Um, she left herself open. Benny was right. Alma tells her to stop thinking about it, get some sleep. What does Beth do? 
takes out some pills. It is just such an effective moment on Benny's part. We barely know the character yet, but we already have such an excellent impression of him. Of where... Yeah, agreed. The character development with Benny is really strong, right? It just radiates such confidence. I mean, and it's, it probably is well-earned confidence. It actually is not, it's not being put on here. But it just adds to the intimidation value that he can feel comfortable enough to her to give her this kind of fundamental tip as to the game right before he's going to play her the next day. Mm-hmm. And and with her not even necessarily processing the idea that he's trying to get under her skin quite effectively. So this reminds me of Tim Duncan. Uh, Tim, Spencer, you've heard of Tim Duncan, right? You have a basketball lot of basketball player? references this time. I'm loving this. A lot of basketball references. Hope my friend Levi's listening. A lot of basketball references in, in this episode of Magnum Talks TV. But this reminds me of Tim Duncan. So what Benny, well. what Benny is doing here, I think, is something that Penn, Tim Duncan used to do. So Tim Duncan, traditional big man, used to play down on the post. Post, pretty intimate place. Guys are banging right next to each other. They're, they're ear to ear. Um, and they talk a lot. And what Duncan used to do is, like, if a guy came into him and they were, like, going to, like, do, like, let's say, uh, like a, a baby hook, right? They take two dribbles. They go up for the baby hook. If he blocks it with his left, he'd say, you know what you could do? You know, you could, you could just kind of fake your right. That, that, that would give you a little off balance, give you some space for the shot. So he'd start coaching them down in the post, right? And the reaction that guys had is completely across the spectrum. Some guys, when he would do this, would want to fight him immediately. It was like a, a, a complete affront to their manhood. Other guys would go, oh, okay. And they, like, here's an example. So Mark Gasol, a uh, player who was came along, he was he was pretty young when Duncan was, was advanced. So, like, Duncan's much older than he is. Mm-hmm. And he did this to Gasol. And what Gasol did is just said, okay. And he went right back down the court, got the ball, and did exactly what Duncan told him to do. And Duncan <laughs> let him score on the move. And Duncan, as they're walking back, he says, yeah, see, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, see, good move, good move. You did it right. <laughs> so he's coaching. I think that's what Benny is doing here. I think, I think there really is a legitimate part of him that wants to coach um, and teach Beth, but I also think uh, he's just fucking with her. I hope it's the case. I hope that there is an honestly, you know, well-intended spirit here. But we cannot deny that there also is some self. There also is some selfish goals also attached to it. Absolutely, because we are cutting to the next day, and Beth is about to play Benny. Uh, does Benny always wear this big leather like duster jacket and cowboy hat and tight jeans? I mean, he has a look, my friend. Realistically. How much do those probably smell with how much he's wearing these in friggin' Las Vegas? It's hot outside, dude. Yeah, it probably probably stinks to high hell. Uh, Beth is working out the pieces of the board they start to play. Both very confident, but uh, as they play, eventually, only if you caught it, Spencer, Beth plays a defensive move. She pulls her, yeah. I think it's the left side of her board, she pulls her bishop back. And great music is playing during this scene. This sort of like complex, driving, like chaotic music. Uh, piano piece. A lot of strings playing in the background. And Beth has this quote. I thought he could see what I was planning. I thought he could hear my heart beating and know how panicked I was. He still had time to get out of it, but he took the piece just as I, just as I had planned. I went into that game with a perfect score, but he had two draws. So a draw would give me the title. I wanted to win. I had to hammer his weaknesses. I wanted to show that fucking pirate that I could beat him, even if I didn't play the way he thought I should. But then he captured my center pawn, my protected pawn, the pawn that held his queen to her corner for most of the game. This is Beth uh, reliving the scene with Alma. Uh, after the fact, and I, you, you commented on this before, just how much how important it is to pay attention to her physical mannerisms and how how they yeah. what they reflect about her. She just looks so off as we're doing the flashbacks in this game. She looks so disconcerted, so 
uncomfortable in her own skin as she's playing this compared to this pillar of confidence we've seen before. Absolutely. So he, what Vinny does in this game is he forces an exchange of queens. And she couldn't believe it. I mean, that's a, that's a, a pretty bold yeah. move. Um, and in doing so, catches her on her back feet. She's left open. She's in trouble. She starts to get upset. And you can tell it how she, like to your point, Spencer, how she's moving the pieces. She's not making a lot of eye contact with him. She's contorted in her chair. Um, in her explanation to her mother, she calls it brutal. She says, it's the type of thing I do to other people. <laughs> tough. Alma, what did you do? Beth, I needed a counter threat, a move that would stop him in his tracks. But she didn't have one, Spencer. She did not have one. Benny had her. Quote, I had to retreat, but he kept coming. I wanted to scream. Cut to Beth hearing, Mr. Scheibel, you will resign now. She's got that in the yeah. back of her mind. So what does Beth do? Spencer, she resigns. For the first time in her professional career, I would say. First time she takes the clean L, she resigns. Benny, still coaching her just a tad, but also fucking with her a little bit. Maybe, I don't know, what is he doing? He says, tough game. I'm with you. I view this as him falling into the same coaching kind of mode that he seems to like to be in. But one can imagine that in her present state of mind, Beth takes that as very condescending. But I will say, I've watched the watched the later episodes. I will say, I do think that right here, this is him being completely empathetic to 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 her. I I, I do believe that, and I think that I hope as you if you're just watching this for the first time, I want you to keep that perspective with the Benny character. I think that'll help you. Um, Beth gets up from the board, storms out. Alma explains that they'll split the trophy, split the money. It's all good, right? Yeah. Hell no. Beth doesn't care about all that jazz. She took the L. Hurts her pride. Alma, I know is what it, I know what it feels like to lose. Beth, pretty harsh here. Yeah, I bet you do, Alma. Oh. And now you do too. Oh, good response, Alma. Whew. I believe this is the first time we ever see our girl Beth Harmon take the L. Beth is leaving. Towns says he's sorry. Spencer, what do you think he's saying sorry for? Not what he then claims he's saying he's sorry for. He claims mm. he's, you know, sorry it was such a hard loss. You'll get him next time. Beth interprets what he's actually saying he's sorry for when she immediately says, that doesn't matter. Say hi to Roger for me and gets in the car. Whew. I know. Beth, uh, Beth did not have a good Vegas run. Nope. Um, very bad. A um, bad trip to Vegas? That is just a shame. Yeah. Who would have thunk it? Um Alma takes her hand and they hold hands. The camera kind of lingers on that. So it shows, I think it's meant to show that Alma in all of her weaknesses, I will continue to hammer this mm-hmm. very flawed person, but does seem to really genuinely love Beth and is trying to comfort her here. Music plays in the background. Song is the end of the world by Skeeter Davis. Very good tune. Spencer, check it out. If you haven't checked it out before, it's a very good song. <laughs> no, and I, I... we cut to the end of the episode and I'm going to title this. It's the Beth is human after all episode. Yes, the Beth is human after all, and the relationship she has with Anya is both human and very real, too. This really made the world feel a lot more realistic and a lot more lived in, and I appreciated that. I agree. It was uh, it was needed. You knew this was coming, right? There was mm-hmm. going to be a reckoning for Beth. She wasn't just going to run through the entire chess world never losing her entire life. So this is, she got it. She got the reckoning. Yeah. Benny is her first real boss, right? Her she reached, her, reached the boss level. This is her first boss. And she uh, she had to go back to, to, to square one in the game. Uh, she, she did lose to Benny. Um, I'm, I'm going to love when they, whenever they come, you know, compete against each other again, of where he walks up and says, hey, you're Beth Harmon, right? You know, it's nice to meet you for the first time. 
and just plays, plays that routine together shopping. Oh, God, that would be hilarious. Yeah. Well, we played in Vegas. Mm, I'll have to take your word for it. Yeah, I play, um, I play a lot of tournaments. Yours was, I guess, on a Tuesday or something, and these things happen. Well, let's. That is the recap. Recap is over, my friend. Now we cut to best line of the episode. I alone at best Emperor, best line of the episode. Spencer, do you want to give us some nominees? Uh, would you like to do the round robin format? I think we've been do- working pretty well with that so far. Yeah, let's do it. You want to start? Uh, you want me to start? I'll start. Uh, my first one is very simple. Shit. One line <laughs> carries everything. About this is the re- level of reputation she's already developing that people recognize her by name and are scared at that prospect. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Benny. Um, a quote where he says, "Genuine bummer. All pawns, no hope." Just That's- sort of funny. I like that line. It's a, it's a really interesting turn of phrase. Um, I liked Alma kind of coming into her own as dark and painful and likely disastrous as that is going to be. I still enjoy her newfound confidence. And so when she looks at the twins as they're walking away to join them for lunch and says, I can't make up my mind which one is more handsome. I just found that cute. She's yeah. on her game again. Uh, I'm going to go with one of the twins when they say, you destroy everyone you play, Harmon. That, yeah, that's such a wonderful summary of what her strategy is. Uh, I'm going to take a good one that might easily top two for me of this episode, but anyway, it's the board I noticed first. It's an entire world of just 64 squares. I feel safe in it. I can control it, dominate it, and it's predictable. So if I get hurt, I only have myself to blame. Very great, good line. Great damn line. The most revealing moment of Harmon we've ever gotten in the series. Uh, I'm going to cut way forward to the match with Benny. I had to retreat, but he kept coming. I wanted to scream. So many good lines in her summary of that match. Yeah, definitely. Um, the one I like between towns is because I really enjoy the, the banter and interaction between the two of them. But you've grown up, Harmon. You've even gotten good looking. Like I, I like the little bit of negging back and forth they engage with each other. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, I'm, I'm done with mine, so get, uh, finish your list. Yeah, two, two last one, quick ones for me. I love the return of Mr. Scheibel in that moment of you resign now. Powerful line, powerful moment. We noted that when that line happened, how much that would probably resonate with her. I'm glad to see her keep returning to it in her mind. And how much Mr. Scheibel still factors into her concept of herself as a chess player. I like that. And last one for me, I love this just inter, um, interaction between Alma and Beth. I know, I know what it feels like to lose. Yeah, I bet you do. And now you do too. Yep, yep. Very good one. All right, best line of the episode. Queen's Gambit episode three is I know what it feels like to lose. Yeah, I bet you do. And now you do too. I feel like that had to be the best line of the episode because it perfectly sums up the episode and the whole point of the episode, which was to show Beth is human, to show that she, you know, she she can lose and now she has something to overcome. Uh, So yeah, it had to be the best line of the episode. And it's a great moment too because it's, it's not just showing the audience that she's human. It's also reminding her that she's human. Because she'd started to get pretty full of herself with, you know, some just deserves. Um, but it's a necessary moment of humility that she's going to need to actually improve as a chess player going forward. Now we go to best scene of the episode. <clears throat> I'll give an honorable mention to best scene of the episode. Please. It's the hotel room scene with uh, Beth and Towns. Uh, yeah. Would have been would have been gold medal yeah, winner. Uh, fucking, Roger. fucking Roger. Oh, the worst. That would have definitely won if Beth had, 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 had gone off and hooked up with Towns there. Uh, but yeah. no, uh, Roger fucked up. I think we're we're both mutually so pissed at Roger. I think he's now going to show up in different different shows. It's just a trope. When the fucking Roger shows up and inter- interrupts a scene. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. The fucking <laughs> we Roger. Yep. We, yep. we have Ruining an in-joke. Um, um, all right. Well, best scene of the episode, Spencer. I, 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 
I'm going to say what mine I think it is, and you tell me if uh, you have any different ideas. But I, I think it has to be the chess match with Vinny. Um, it, it is a. I think it is the most important scene, but it, it is not my favorite. But let's talk about okay. that scene first. Of where it is <clears throat> well, so important, it is yep. so well structured. It is a great back and forth in time in terms of doing it out, and is eminently important to the plot in a way I cannot dispute. And I love the sporting angle of this. I love watching Beth play and just yes. rooting for her and seeing it start to crumble and like, oh God, will she get out of it? And the, I mean, all the emotions that get tied up in that and then seeing her actually get vulnerable and lose and have to, 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 to get up and leave uh, knowing she took the L. Um, you know, I feel like the whole episode was culminating in that scene. I feel like it's probably one of the top three or four most important scenes of the entire show. Um, so yeah, I, I give it to that one. And Anya Taylor-Joy acts her ass off, both throughout this episode, but particularly in that scene. The little difference in the fluctuations in her mannerisms are just so important compared to how otherwise we've seen her in the past. And she really represents that well. Yeah, completely Uh, agree. My favorite scene, though? Yep. When the Vogue start playing and the alcohol starts flowing. That scene and that framing and that music. I love the 60s music we get in this episode. It's great. But I love just how that scene is framed and shot of even the obvious stuff about you're the one that I really love is she's walking up to the alcohol and leaves the party and the music keeps playing. Again, you're the one I really love while she's a bit loaded, but is now staring at the ceiling and having the chest You're the one that I'm around. dreaming of. And then yes. you're the one that I'm dreaming of as she's laying in bed. Yeah, very, very good. I, I like that too. I thought that was like, I feel like that's like, you know, you're going to like film school or something. Like yes. there's, a, there's, a, there's a scene to, to, to study. That was just a good short film. They basically just smushed into the middle of this episode. Not as imminently important to the plot. It's more, you know, emphasizing a bit of prior characterization we've already had, but just a really good piece of filmmaking. Well, the character development of Beth starting to starting to drink alone is is yeah, a yeah, um, that, that is true. That is an important note. Yeah, so that that's pretty big. But uh, yeah, that's a good call, Spencer. That was a very good scene. But I do I think you know if you're doing like uh, you know most important scene, uh, got to be got to be her and and Benny slugging it out. Um, I don't think it's a shock to anybody. It might not be the last time they ever play, but it certainly is the first, and it certainly is the, the big old L put on our girl Beth Harmon. Tough episode for Beth. Um, all right. I think Go she's going to grow from this, though. I, 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 as said, this was a necessary moment. If she hadn't had this moment now, I think it would have been all the more disastrous for her to have it later. So this is a good moment in your career to have a bit of adversity, to realize that you are human, that you are flawed, and that you can learn from that. And I think she can only improve from having that knowledge. I agree. All right. So those are all the segments. Now we cut to my favorite segment, Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. Spencer, take it away. Well, Lee, I got an interesting enough topic for you this time. But first, I've got a couple questions for you. Okay, fire away. In your illustrious career of succeeding at all things, have you ever played a computer at chess? Uh, yeah, I think I've played computer programs before, sure, yeah. I think all of us have at some point or another. It's just kind of one of those programs that's always in the background whenever you're bored and, you know, you're not in the mood for Minesweeper or, if you were so lucky, Space Cadet Pinball. Well, would it surprise you to know that the first person that had that sensation of playing an automatic machine, playing against them in chess, was back in 1770 in the Austrian Empire? Oh, uh, what? What? <laughs> uh, the first automatic chess machine, as it was called, uh, was named the Turk and was built by Wolfgang von Kimplen 
before the court of Maria Theresa, the Empress of Austria, back in 1770. It looked like this giant, kind of like game cabinet with a chessboard on top, with a dummy of the torso, the arms, and the head, dressed up like an Ottoman Turk, hence the name, bolted to the back end of it, who would reach over and pick up and move the pieces and even react to you as you played, shaking his head and moving your piece back if you did an illegal move, responding and nodding to encourage you with certain moments, even indicating when he had check or checkmate to you by, by means of various gestures. All of this done seemingly by the machine itself moving things around. If you opened up in the interior, it was a nightmare of cogs and wheels and moving parts seemingly filling the entire, the entire apparatus. And this thing toured Europe for 84, toured Europe and actually the United States near the end, for 84 years. This friggin' Napoleon played against this thing. Benjamin Franklin, when he was the ambassador to France, played this thing. Notably lost to this thing, too. In fact, it regularly defeated some of the greatest players of chess in Europe at the time, and was viewed as just an utter scientific marvel. Now, what do you think the trick was for this thing? Uh, little people? There just were, a whole bunch of little people inside? There was a... It was just a single person, but there... The, the trick was is that this was always originally intended to be an illusion. This was a dare that von Kemplin had thought for himself upon seeing oh, an that's funny. Okay. <laughs> upon seeing an illusionist perform at the court of Maria Theresa and being unimpressed, and decided to come back with something that was truly impressive. And it was a very impressive mat, a bit, bit of magic that he created. The device, indeed, if you opened it up, looked like it was filled to the brim with just constant interworking bits of machinery. And they did, indeed, fill about of a third of it. In fact, there were multiple departments and multiple sliding doors inside, so that he could consistently open little compartments around it to always look like it was just machinery inside, but at the same time allow the interior operator to essentially crawl around the device on cue to avoid being seen. The device also used a complex series of magnets on each of the pieces so that the operator could look at the chessboard from underneath so as to move the puppet in pantomime and see where the other players, the, the human player, had gone. It was an incredibly impressive machine. It just wasn't actually a machine that was playing you. It was an operator in a very complex magical illusion. Somebody then, who seemed to know chess pretty well, too, if he was beating Benjamin Franklin. Uh, they were regularly putting various different chess masters in the course of things. It had an 84-year career. <laughs> the chess masters died a few times over the course of operating it. Changed owners several times, but the bluff kept going throughout its life until it sadly died in a fire in the United States. They made the mistake of loaning it to us for a certain period, and two years later, yeah, we Yeah, of course, we fucked that up. Yep, sure. We did. We did that. And then the owner, at the, the owner at the time revealed about two or three years later that it was throughout its entire career an elaborate hoax. And everyone, world leaders and everything else, was suddenly at a remarkable bit of denial that they'd been so thoroughly bamboozled for decades. What's notable, though, is that despite having this been revealed as an elaborate con, it didn't stop several other operators to do the same thing for years after it had been revealed as an elaborate con. Ajib, this one with a Persian puppet, because all of these have to be vaguely racist, uh, came around in 1868 and was touring primarily the United States, playing against Harry Houdini and Theodore Roosevelt and countless other celebrities. Uh, Mephisto came about in 1876. Wait a second, this thing played Teddy Roosevelt? Uh, Ajib, yeah, the, 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 the there, new one that came about. The after new the one, yeah. There's no, like, cause they would have, they probably had to hold him back from breaking into the thing because I mean, uh, he's just he was such a curious guy. <laughs> 
I'm sure that they had to do very limited presentation, mostly as she played a key events, uh, which I think would think limited the opportunity for people to look through it other than under control. Yeah. Mep- Mephisto is probably my favorite though, of where it is the it came about in 1876 and it literally gave it the opportunity to play the devil. They've gone from a Turk to a Persian to now let's play the personification of Satan. This one was even more advanced, so much so that it avoided some of the um, ways that people had now learned to check whether there was a person in the box. This one was entirely by by remote control. Again, in 1876, a guy off behind the screen was controlling it by a series of electrical transmission. So again, an incredibly impressive bit bit of technology by which it actually competed in and was the first to win in a chess tournament. It also, but just not what it says it is. That's, and that's really right. the, the, the tune for all of these original devices, is that yeah. they were not actually computers, but they were still incredibly impressive works of technology. Right. Mephisto was also famously polite, in the sense that whenever it, would, it defeated every single male player that ever played it. However, it lost to every single female player, and then offered to shake and kiss their hand afterwards. A remarkably polite devil that they were playing. Well, of course. And it continued a trend of all of these being in some way tied in and associated with the occult. The Turk, the original one, the, ori- the original creator had a, nas- had a wonderful habit of actually having a giant coffin set atop it before it would play, as if in some way it was drawing on spirits from the afterlife. Hence why he used a Turk. They were being associated with this kind of eastern sorcery that was powering the device. Mephisto kept that going, though a little bit more tongue-in-cheek, and it was influential enough and more recent enough that actually a lot of modern chess programs have actually been named Mephisto in honor of it. Now, we've gone through the first few, going from the 18th century to the 19th, of all these being eh, mostly just cons and hoaxes and magician's tricks. However, when looking this up, the first actual chess computer was remarkably older than I thought. Uh, Meaning, essentially, the chess player, and I think it was either Spanish or Portuguese, the first actual accepted computer that would play you in chess was in 1912. Whoa. Running on on circuits, having flashing lights, even having sound effects and human voice so as to express when it had you in check or in checkmate. This was honestly the first computer game, really the first computer game in history, developed by Leonardo Torres y Quevado. It was a a truly technical marvel. Now, it was very limited. This was not actually defeating professional players. It wasn't even defeating novices. It had a very very set series of moves that it could employ, but it was still reading the moves of the other player. You'd pick up the piece, you'd set it down, it had a metal little uh, base on the bottom of it that would send a little electrical symbol into the circuit, and then it had a programmed series of moves to respond to the other player's moves. This was a very early computer, and... As is going to be very common here, the first time somebody develops a computer, their first thought is, I must find a way to make it play somebody in chess. And so, really inspired by this, and by a natural tendency, appears by all original computer pioneers to also be good chess players who desperately desired for machines to be able to play them, including Alan Turing and Claude Claude Shannon and John von Neumann, pretty much all of these guys, the original pioneers of computing, all tried to design chess machines. And by about the mid-20th century, they started to get really good at it. One of the real first successful ones, one of the first ones that has a lot of note, was developed by Los Alamos, like so many other technical marvels in U.S. history, where they, I suppose out of a sense of humor, named it Maniac. 
this one in 1956 is the first documented computer, proper computer, not guy in box, to actually defeat a human at chess. It played a novice, it defeated that novice, and I guarantee that person never heard the end of it, but it is indeed the first documented success. By the 60s, MIT got involved in the game and came out Here with, we go. Came out with yeah. MacHack. MacHack essentially developed as a side project of students until their professor at MIT decided that to make the public statement that there was no way that a computer would ever successfully defeat a competent human. His students then decided, oh, well, professor, would you like to try ours? And it promptly defeated him. In fact, they then put it into a major tournament. Uh, and it not only did pretty well, it actually scored a chess rating of 1529, which at the time, the, av the average uh, rating of any member of the U.S. Chess Federation was only 1500. This thing was capable of thinking out 10 positions a second. In 1967, as said, it competed in tournaments and actually won games in the tournaments against professional players. Wow. This was a big moment, and it only continued to inspire people further. For the 1970s, Northwestern got involved with what they very creatively named Chess. Please, oh. please call the Northwestern people and get them to think of better names. Unbelievable. <laughs> Maniac and Macac, that's just not impressive. However, their coding was. This thing now had a Chess rating of over 2,000. Again, we're talking about expert or candidate master level. It was capable at the time of beating 99.5% of all rated U.S. Chess Federation members under tournament conditions. And now, not only was it winning games at tournaments, it was winning the entire championships. This continued through IBM getting involved. IBM, as well as Carnegie Mellon, developed deep thought in 1989 through the genius Feng Sung Su, nicknamed Crazy Bird, which with a name like that, I'm going to continue to refer to him as Crazy Bird going forward. Strong. That's, yeah, that's what they used to call you in college, Crazy Bird. I have no idea why they did, but yeah, the name stuck. Uh, he was a Taiwanese-American computer scientist and utter genius who massively expanded the capabilities of computers starting in the, 19, in the primarily the 1980s. With deep thought, which came out in 1989, no longer were computers just winning tournaments, they were defeating grandmasters in tournaments. Yeah, I've heard a deep thought before. This is the first part of this that I, that I think has uh, I, I caught any whiff of in pop culture. Yeah, deep thought was was really became a major part, a bit important part of pop culture because now we're talking a chess rating of between 2,500 and 2,600 or possibly even higher. It was defeating accepted grandmasters, former world champions, in under tournament conditions. It was capable of doing a billion positions evaluated per every move. It thought up 720,000 moves a second to prepare each one of its moves. And yet, still, this machine was being defeated by the world great at the time, Gary Kasparov. Back Kasparov beat the machine. Yeah, that's that's the thing I've always heard about, yeah. Kasparov, in his full John Henry style, defeated this machine twice. Now, Kasparov, we've mentioned before in this, is... Nice reference. Legendary. Truly legendary. This guy was the best-rated player in the world for 21 years. 1984 through 2005. He was the highest-rated player for eight years after he retired. Until Magnus Carlsen finally uh, usurped him in the position. But Carlsen still regards Kasparov as the single best player who had ever lived. Now, despite developing reputation as being one of the just famous human opponents of machines there in the Twilight era, he actually was 
relatively early invested in the process of using computers to make himself better at chess. He was one of the early adopters of using computers as part of his training. And had, at the time of deep thought, regularly played and defeated computers for years. Now, sir, I don't know what you know about IBM, but do you think IBM's a company that likes the idea of losing in a public fashion? Hell no. They probably they look. This is part. This is part of the reason why you don't buy anything. That well, we don't really know about IBM anymore, right? Because they probably threw twenty million dollars at this problem. Yeah, and their twenty million dollar solution to this problem was deep blue. They spent. Nearly 10 years working on this thing after uh, Kasparov humiliated them with Deep Thought in 1989. And in 1996, they were ready to challenge him again. Now, the challenge was to do a six-game chess match under conditions which, to put it lightly, seemed like they favored Deep Blue just at least a little bit. Okay. Kasparov asked if he could review prior games played by Deep Blue, as if he'd be able to do against any other opponent. IBM nope. refused. Kasparov asked if he could examine Deep Blue, even try it out a little bit before he played it. IBM again refused. Nope. And Deep Blue was a goddamn monster. We talked before about, you know, Deep Thought being capable of doing 720,000 moves a second. IBM was no longer content to lose in tournament fashion. They made Deep Blue, again, this was developed by the same crazy bird scientist, now capable of, of, of thinking out 100 million moves a second. Ooh. This was a style that was called brute force. Various uh, grandmasters that played Deep Blue referred to it as being about as intelligent as alarm clock, but like a wall coming at you. It wasn't smart. This was not a thinking machine of any, you know, any AI kind of sense. It was a machine conditioned and built for the sole purpose of just overwhelming the human mind with every permutation possible, with every move that had been presented. And in 1996, Kasparov defeated Deep Blue 4-2. Can you imagine how pissed off IBM was at this? They still were the first time a computer had defeated the world champion in tournament setting, but they still lost the match 4-2. So here's my question. Do you know the answer to this? So when they were designing that, when they were programming this thing, this deep blue with a hundred million moves a second or whatever, were they having to like input all of the puts and takes here? Or was, was there some sort of like algorithm they were like, you know what I'm saying? Like, did they have to like manually enter every conceivable move and every conceivable response or was this this something that that, that was like an, an algorithm that, that played that stuff out the kind of heuristics and multi-level thinking was something that really honestly started to come later which allowed them to massively simplify this machine this was kind of still before the era of machine learning they just coded this shit so it was just code after code of every permutation possible in chat oh wow and no yeah they probably spent more than 20 million and it still lost to kasparov and so ibm real pissed off, spent a year, another year, to then challenge Kasparov to another six-game chess match. And, this and if time, you're IBM shareholders, you got to love the effort here, right? This is great. This well, is just awesome. And it's important thing to know that IBM was advertising the ever-loving crap out of these things. These were the biggest marketing ploy in world history at the time. IBM oh, wow. okay. was making these international news because Kasparov was a legend. This was the height of his career. 
He was a player that had, you know, made it through the Cold War, is still the world reigning champion, and they were putting the best of their computing capabilities up against him in what they were constantly framing as the man-machine matches. And with what was kind of colloquially referred to by some of its programmers as deeper blue, they came out with a new permutation, and this time they just went insane. This thing was a 30-processor supercomputer that was now capable of... 30-processor, wow. 200 million moves per second. This thing was capable of regularly thinking out not only the move it was going to make, but the next 40 moves that it would do thereafter in response to every possible human permutation. Again, not smart. This was, again, the idea of just being a brute force manner of playing this game, but it was the most capable computer ever designed for this purpose. And so when Kasparov met it on May 11th, 1997, again, without any opportunity to prep, this thing had studied Kasparov I guess every single day since it had originally been coded, but he had no honest knowledge of its capabilities. Can you imagine how pissed off IBM was when Kasparov easily prevailed the first game of the six-game match? Wow. They came back for game two, and in the second game, Deep Blue scored a surprise victory with Kasparov resigning seemingly early in response to it. And it's an incredibly controversial game because this is the game of where Kasparov began accusing IBM of cheating. Remember that. I'll get back to it in a minute. The next three matches were draws. Closely contested. If anything, Kasparov was ahead in each of these. And so going into the sixth game, it was two and a half to two and a half with the sixth game controlling. It could have potentially ended on a tie, and that would have been disappointing to everybody. But instead, Deep Blue won in 19 moves. Oh slaughtered Kasparov, which we've seen in Queen's Gambit. Winning a game in like 25 moves is you've already basically humiliated, humiliated your opponent. You win in under 20, and Kasparov isn't going to forgive you for another 10 years. Sure. This was legendary. IBM advertised it to high end about their computers had defeated the world great, the dawn of a new era of machine intelligence. And Kasparov, to put it mildly, did not take it well. He accused IBM to high heaven of cheating. For one, he emphasized the testing conditions, which for one, as we admitted, were somewhat computer favoring. Well, they were unfair, but he did agree to them. He did agree to them. They were unfair, but they weren't remarkably unfair. It was just more that he didn't have necessarily the amount of insight that he would have had into a human opponent. At least hoped that he could have gotten from the computer opponent by having a bit more time to finagle with it. It was the second game, though, that convinced Kasparov that this was not a machine that he was playing. This was the Turk. This was Mephisto. This was the man in the box returned once again. Hmm. The computer made a few moves that both he and several of the grandmasters at the time referred to as too human, too subtle, too seemingly in error for the purpose of lulling into a trap. Oh, so they weren't... Oh, I see. So they weren't like like the... They were it, almost kind of like what we saw in the episode, right? It wasn't like when Benny, Benny took the 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 bait, or uh, Benny quote, the took bait. the bait. Yeah, it wasn't that he was really doing that; he was setting her up for later. And so, basically, what what Kasparov is saying here, tell me if I'm wrong, is the move wasn't the right thing to do. It was 
it was like a baiting move, a very human characteristic, right? right. He very I get it now. He yeah. completely interpreted it lulling him into a trap and became convinced that IBM, what IBM had done is that they'd put together an entire team of masters or grandmasters behind the scene to all work together as part of the coding and adjusting and responding to individual moves so as to catch him up. This was his absolute vehement theory, in part because when he demanded copies of the logs and demanded an opportunity to rematch, IBM's response was to refuse to provide the logs and to destroy the machine almost immediately after the match. Unbelievable. Okay, well, I'm on Kasparov's side here. What IBM did do, though, is that shortly thereafter, they released the logs to the public, as well as allowed interviews with some of the programmers to discuss the machine and how it had performed. What these revealed was that Kasparov had effectively defeated himself, very similar to the game we just watched, of where he became convinced that there was a subtle move in play, that was something that required him to change up his entire strategy and ultimately resign early where he possibly could have done a draw, when in reality, there was an error in the code. This mistake, this trap, was the machine doing a move it didn't intend to do because it couldn't find the move it wanted to do, and so just defaulted to a different one that completely threw Kasparov off his game because he was so used to playing a computer that was going to brute force him. This was just a bit of happenstance luck that convinced Kasparov that he was being outthought when in reality, he was fully outplaying the machine. It had just done a mistake and caught him off his game. Okay, so that explains why IBM then wanted to just scrap the whole thing. It is definitely an element of it. It's also that IBM, it also revealed more of what IBM was intending to do this. Kasparov was sold this was a scientific project to study machine learning and help expand computing. Mm. IBM intended this as a marketing endeavor and got what it wanted out of it. And that's kind of ridiculous because, I mean, you know, otherwise maybe Kasparov wouldn't have agreed to all those ridiculous conditions on the front end. It's very possible so. But this mistake had profound impact on Kasparov because pretty much everybody, including Kasparov in more recent years, have admitted that afterwards he did not play particularly well. He had several opportunities to defeat the machine, but it, if anything, it appears the machine had shattered his confidence because he'd, been, because he'd become convinced that it was far more capable than he thought it was. Huh. If, if Kasparov had been playing better, if Kasparov had been on top of this game, if Kasparov hadn't gotten in his own head, it's perfectly possible that he still could have won and was thoroughly annoyed that he never had the opportunity to play and defeat Deep Blue again. Kasparov career continued for several years after. He's still very much alive and still a very capable chess player, even though he's retired. And he still, at times, was regularly defeating computers for years afterwards. However, 2005 became the last key moment in which a human defeated a computer under tournament conditions. Thereafter, Deep Fritz came about. Now, Deep Fritz came around, came around in 2006 was no longer a brute force computer. This thing basically fit... It was this IBM again? I'd have to double check. I don't have it in front of you. If you don't mind Googling it, while I tell you this. Yeah, because the, the deep name makes me think maybe it is. Might be. Uh, this was no longer a brute force supercomputer. This thing was basically able to function on a desktop. But by being better coded, by having multi-level intelligence, by able to do much more efficient searching and heuristics, though it was only capable of thinking out 8 million moves a second, it was far more powerful than any other computer that had come before it. And in 2006, it decided to play Vladimir Kramnik, one of the successors to Kasparov, again, a rather Russian world champion. So uh, Fritz, Fritz was a German chess program originally developed by the German company Chess Base. So this was not IBM. And that's no surprise, because uh, particularly German programmers have been really leaders in this field for years. Kasparov regularly played computers in Hamburg, for example. Uh, 
Kremnik got much more favorable conditions this time because they understood how powerful this computer was. He, in fact, was allowed a separate copy of the program several months in advance so that he could oh, wow. test it and play it and train on it. Now that's confidence from the developer, right? Oh yeah. And unlike with IBM and Deep Blue, where IBM, this is even, I forgot this condition, IBM was allowed to reprogram it between matches to fix mistakes in the just for play style of, um, of Kasparov. Hmm. By comparison, uh, Deep Fritz was not allowed that at all. Except for very limited up, uh, updates, it was not allowed to be changed at all during the course of the match, other than correct, like, plain, obvious faults. It, uh, rather than it being a close contest, Deep Fritz slaughtered Kramnik, 4-2. And since then, there have been no major human-computer matches since. In fact, in the words of Kasparov, today you can buy a chess engine for your laptop that would beat Deep Blue quite easily. Or phrased another way, for $50, you can buy a home PC program that will crush most grandmasters. Yeah, Fritz, you can still you can get on your uh, your Android phone. Yeah, Fritz is basically a line of different programs that have come out in many different updates over the years. The top one now is called Stockfish. And in 2020, I've given you comparisons of the various moments in terms of chess ratings. And to offer a point of comparison, the best rated player in the world, his top rating was 2,882. Stockfish has a chess rating of 3,573. Holy shit. It is beyond any human measure. We are so thoroughly off the chart that there's no point of even being compared. We're at a point now of where things like Stockfish, which again, fits on just your everyday computer, and even lesser ones that fit on your cell phone are so thoroughly powerful that cell phones are banned from tournaments for exactly that reason. Because mm -hmm. if you could just program in the moves on a cell phone, you will win every tournament because the little program you have to train with is far better than anything you would be capable of. It's to the point that Magnus Carlsen, though he regularly uses computers as part of his training, never plays a full match against the computer because he's convinced that it will depress him. Sure will. Now... Do we find this depressing? Well, it's certainly momentous. Kasparov, in particular, was a legendary figure. He was viewed as being almost superhuman. Players today view him as the greatest that ever played, and he was particularly relevant because he was the last of an era. He was the last of the Soviet grandmasters. His career spanned the downfall of the Soviet Union and continued afterwards. And so there have been many Russian greats since. The defeat of him was incredibly symbolic. Now... As said, many people can find this depressing. You can rage against the machine. You can be like McMurty in um, The Thing and just pour your coffee on it if you so wish. But there's also some positives to this development that have happened. For one, it's often credited as being a key part of chess players continuing to be better. That now they have the opportunity to play opponents at all times that are better than they ever could be. Oh, I'm sure they're better because of it, right? They have to be. Just because you have the opportunity to play more games under actual competition circumstances. I mean... It, it, for any sport, for any activity, being having the opportunity to play somebody that's either your equal or better than you at a whim at any hour of the day gives you constant abilities to hone and improve. So that is a key part of it. It's also ultimately a reflection of human accomplishment. Again, it was Crazy Bird that designed these great computers and numerous other geniuses since. These things haven't... We've not reached the singularity of where the computers are designing themselves. These are still a reflection of human intelligence and human ability aspiring towards the same goal that the earliest human programmers wanted to. If anything, it's accomplishing their long-term ambitions in a way that they never even would have thought possible. It's also notable that, quite similar to like the Apollo program, this focus on developing computers that could defeat humans at chess 
has had numerous effects outside of the chess field. By massively increasing the capabilities of computing and massively improving their ability to have kind of parallel track and multi-stacked heuristic intelligence, computers and computer software entered the modern world. We can really credit things like Deep Blue as really developing a lot of the automatic systems that essentially run our economy, run our medicine, run the countless other in industries and avenues that were probably never really intended necessarily when they were building these chess machines, but had those same kind of incidental, accidental inspirations and developments as a necessary part of accomplishing this goal. That is human achievement. That is human majesty. That is incredible human accomplishment. That should still be proud of, even if totally we want to pour our coffee on the machine whenever it defeats us at any given day. So I hope you found this interesting. I hope you found it entertaining. It was certainly interesting for me to research, and I hope I taught you a little bit about the long, surprisingly long road of humans trying to eventually build a machine that will defeat them at one of the most ancient of games. So I'm going to bring back something on the Mangum Talks TV uh, podcast. Ages ago when we were doing these po podcasts, I used to give you an up or down vote to see if your legislation would pass based on how much I liked the, uh, the Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. So that is back, my friend, and you have got a unified government. I Bravo, Spencer. This one was one of your better ones. I was That was really, really good. I was entertained. Passes both chambers by a supermajority president signs of legislation. Thank well, you for that, Spencer. I'm glad you enjoyed it. This is this kind of ends for at least a little while the more abstract topics. Uh, from here on in, I'm going to move into a few of the chess players and maybe even a few of the inspirations that may have given our writers on both the book and the show a bit of guidance on styling the character of Beth. So hope you'll find that entertaining too. Man, that was that was a good one. Uh, so thanks everybody for joining us here on uh, Magnum Talks TV. We will be back next week with episode four of the queen's gambit please go to mangumtalks.com check out our other podcasts we have pottery around mangum reads mangum laughs mangum talks tv mangum everything we have a lot of pods out there for you check them out we're here for you thank you for listening we'll be here next week see you <laughs>